Katie Anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we have eight questions and they cover all sorts of things between dissociation and numbing, um, having a tough time reaching out for help, what to expect in therapy, narcissism, all sorts of things. And if you're looking to get your question answered and you've been trying for this podcast and it just doesn't seem to happen, I also answer questions in a monthly live stream over on my Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton and you can check out the tiers. I have tiers to fit everyone's differing budgets. Um, there's even the pay what you can tier where you can join our discord and you can also participate in the live streams and all that good stuff. But to get your questions answered in the live stream, it's at the $20 tier and above. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into those questions. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, I would love to hear your opinions on the difference between numbing out and dissociation. I've been talking a lot with my therapist about not wanting to be present in my body, but struggling to determine when I'm numbing out, phone, sleeping, or truly dissociated. Thanks. Now, this is a great question. Now, dissociation comes along with a lot of different things, right? It does have to do with like, numbing out or like pulling the ripcord on reality because reality is too overwhelming. It's too emotionally charged for us. And so we have to put some distance between ourselves and what's happening. And that's what dissociation is. Now we can be dissociated from like, they call it derealization, which is I'm dissociated from my environment or depersonalization, like I'm disconnected from myself, right? So we can be disconnected in different ways. And a lot of people have both, right? It just depends on the situation. Now, numbing out is kind of when we do, we're still present in our bodies, but we're doing things like mindlessly scrolling through Instagram or drinking, doing drugs, shopping, overspending, gambling, um, and maybe binge eating. We can be engaging in some type of behavior that numbs us out, meaning like assuages the extreme emotion we're feeling that's uncomfortable. An extreme really just means that it's too much for us, okay? No judgments there, right? Everybody has their own capabilities to manage certain emotions. Like I don't probably have as much of an ability to manage anger as other people because I'm not that comfortable with it, okay? So when I feel overly angry, I do some behaviors to quote unquote numb out. The scrolling, the buying, the drinking, the whatever. Now dissociation is when I feel overwhelmed and my nervous system kind of takes the front seat and decides what it's going to do. And it's like, we're going to pull the ripcord. Now, yes, I can allow that to happen more easily versus fighting it. Like I can try grounding techniques or not, but I'm not, I'm not fully in control in the way I am in numbing out. Does that make sense? I know this is like kind of like splitting hairs because frankly, it doesn't really matter because both of these scenarios are ways that we're trying to deal with something that's uncomfortable or overwhelming. And we don't really have like another way to do it. But I think of we can choose to or allow ourselves to numb out because we might not even be aware that we're doing it. it. might not feel like a choice. We can numb out or we can tap in. I mean, I can be aware of like, oh my God, I'm starting to feel angry and that's really uncomfortable. And that's why I find myself online shopping more. Or that's why I find myself just like binge watching, uh, keeping up with the Kardashians or scrolling through TikTok for hours, right? Those are things that I'm doing and I'm, I'm aware, I'm present. I might just not be aware that this is numbing out. 
Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, dissociation is almost like it just happens, poof. And then we're like, wait, and we don't, maybe our memory's kind of spotty or it's hard. We can feel like we're in a fog. It's a little bit different. I feel like numbing out and dissociation are almost different levels of, of the same type of thing. Numbing out would be the starter part, like where, oh, I feel kind of overwhelmed. I don't really like it. I'm going to overeat or I'm going to drink or whatever. Dissociation's like, oh my God, that was so, I was triggered or overwhelmed. Boop, I needed to just escape for a bit. And like, I don't really remember what happened that rest of that day. Okay, so that's kind of the difference. So think about how this works for you and what what looks like numbing out for you because everybody's going to be different. I just gave some examples of things that I've heard that I do myself personally, that I've heard from uh, viewers and patients of mine over the years see what it is for you and pay attention to when you're doing that specific thing. Does that make sense? Okay. I hope that helps. If you need more clarification, please let me know. Now, um, an add-on says, does numbing out lead to dissociation or does, does dissociation lead to the desire to do these numbing out activities? For example, lately I find myself scrolling through my phone and when I decide to engage in the real world, I'm so derealized that it feels impossible And so sometimes I just go back to my phone until my head feels less stuffed with cotton. And when that happens, engaging in real life feels easy. I think it can go both ways. The most common in my mind would be that numbing out then leads to dissociation. Because if the numbing out doesn't help us, it doesn't take the edge off, doesn't help us feel a little bit better, a little bit more neutral or safer or calmer or any of those things, if it doesn't do its quote unquote job, then we're going to have to take it to another level, which to me would be dissociation. Again, not ranking these in level of, I don't know, necessity of therapy or quote unquote worse or better, nothing like that. Just levels within the disconnection between ourselves. Okay. Numbing out, I think is the, it would lead up and then farther in would be more dissociation. Okay. Cause numbing out doesn't usually come with any kind of, um, you know, dissociative fugues where we don't have a memory of it. Right. Okay. So I think if numbing out isn't effective, if it doesn't do what we're trying to do, if it doesn't actually help us numb out, then we can dissociate. I do not know if dissociation can lead to the desire to do numbing out. I think maybe the reactivity of our nervous system and what could lead us to dissociation could could put numbing out in there in the middle, like on our pathway to it. Does that make sense? And so I do believe that in that route, yes. So numbing out, if it's not effective, can cause dissociation. And I think in route to that, we can try to numb out so that dissociation doesn't happen. Okay. And that's probably why you go back to that kind of numbing out so that you can reconnect because dissociation is like too far. You're too far gone. When you try to come back, your head feels like it's stuffed with cotton. So you're like, Ugh, you're not, you're, you have to like, it's almost like maybe the numbing out stuff is a little more grounding in a, in a, its own way for you. Now there was another add on. It says, could you also be um, burnt out versus depressive of I'm so done with life, which leads to a shutdown or a switch off or a tune out from both the environment and myself into the comparison of numbing out and dissociation. Um, being burnt out means that the the reward for what we're getting from the thing we do, the reward can be money, it can be fulfillment, it can be connection, a reward can be any number of things. It's not at least commensurate, meaning equal with or greater than the effort that we put into stuff. And so if we're feeling burnt out on life because we're like, man, I'm putting so much effort into all this. And this could even pertain to like working on our mental health. You're like, I am trying so hard and I still don't feel good. And no matter how much effort, I'm not getting any reward. We can feel burnt out and burnt out can look like depressive symptoms, anxious symptoms, um, irritability is a really common one, um, feeling disconnected, all of that. 
And so that can lead to us feeling like I'm so done with life. That's like a depressive, to me, that's a depressive statement. Um, And so we want to tune out because it's too overwhelming. So yes, being burnt out and it going untreated can lead to depression and anxiety. Okay. And the symptoms of those can occur in our burnout without actually meeting criteria for depression and anxiety. Does that make sense? I hope so. So we can have some of those symptoms. And then if it goes untreated for a long time, it can lead to depression and anxiety. Okay. Now, with that being said, that if we continue down this path and we're just not taking care of ourselves, feeling worse and worse and worse, then we can want to shut uh, shut down, switch off, or tune out from the environment and yourself. Because essentially we're let, we're feeling worse and worse and worse. And getting it's getting harder and harder and harder for us to, to tolerate. We've tried the numbing out. It's not, it's not working. And that can lead to dissociation. So yes, that's kind of, it's almost like numb out's like a pit stop on our way to dissociation if we don't have any other coping skills, okay? Another person said, as an add-on, I struggle to be in my body as well, which is one of the reasons for my anorexia. I tend to feel quote-unquote spaced out and sometimes everything seems far away. My brain is too foggy to have any clear thoughts or respond to questions. However, I still hear people and remember everything. Is that dissociation? It could be. Everybody's different and not everyone who dissociates doesn't remember the whole time they're dissociating. It's usually just like feels disconnected. We feel like a fog or like a space between us and other people or almost like we can't think clearly. It's a a lot of my patients have said it feels like they're not actively participating in their life. They're kind of like along for the ride. Like your brain is just like taking you through conversations and things. And we just kind of are there. So that could be why you're feeling that way. That could be dissociation. Um, and the fact that you struggle to be in your body um, tells me that that could be really triggering. And so, you know, also the anorexia helps you numb out. I totally understand. Um, that does sound to me like dissociation. You can still, I've had like even my friend Dodie who talks about this all the time on her social media or she used to I don't know if she actually does as much anymore but she has DPDR depersonalization derealization disorder and she talks about how she'll have full conversations with people um I was on I've been on panels with her over the years and there was one at Playlist Live I think or maybe VidCon where she was like I legitimately didn't know what I said and she, and I was like oh you were fine and she's like good because sometimes when I'm dissociated I just have like no idea what I'm saying you can still participate. I know it's shocking, but we kind of go into like this autopilot where we're we're like aware but not and it feels really shitty and it can feel really uncomfortable in general or some people find it very comforting too. I don't want to toss that out without acknowledging that some people do enjoy it because their life is so tumultuous that of course to be a little disconnected feels better. But for a lot of us it feels really uncomfortable because we'll participate in things and we won't even know what we did, right? That's distressing. But what's happening sounds like it could definitely be dissociation. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're okay. I am. It says, how do you get out of the cycle of not reaching out for help because you think it'll be too much for people and not feeling safe reaching out? I find myself picking and choosing the exact thing to say rather than letting it all all out in fear that I'll be too much or scare someone away or scared that reaching out will be bad for me. I guess my, I have a couple of questions. Um, first of all, talk to your therapist about this. If you're not in therapy, please find a way to make that happen. Low-cost clinics, online resources. Um, see if you have it at school or through your EAP at work. Let's find a way to get you some support because I think teasing this out in therapy is going to be really helpful. And there's a lot to this, but I'm just going to give you some of my first and in, like initial thoughts on this, okay? 
Now, the too much for people, that has to come from somewhere. Do we believe that in a lot of areas in our life? Like in our friendships, do we not really share that much and we let other people share more because we're afraid that if we share, they won't want to be friends with us anymore? Are we a people pleaser? Do we have addiction growing up? There's got to be something here because this is like a pattern. I I see this as like probably a way that you've been in your life for a long time. Like you worry about saying the exact thing or, you know, what's the right time to share. Um, They're not going to want to, you know, be bad for me. What if I'm too much? I scare them away. There's some firmly held belief system in there where you think that you're too much. And I'm curious about that, where that comes from, when we've been told that, what messages did we receive? If we weren't told directly, what have we kind of seen or been around? Um, All of that. I'm very curious about that because this isn't so much of a cycle as a pattern of behavior throughout your life. And so in order for me to kind of like untangle this, one of my first questions would be like, what is too much? Because chances are you probably don't have a clear definition because you didn't decide what this was. Someone else has decided it. And that's why like, when have you been told, sorry, my nose is itching. When have you been told that you're too much? And that you're going to scare people away. And then I would do some CBT stuff with you. I'd be like, okay, so you shared too much. You scared people away. Then what? Because sometimes we have to play it out. Okay, so I scared people who probably weren't really good friends or family members in the first place because they can't even be there for me when I'm having a hard time um you know okay so they're they aren't around then what do I do well maybe I reach out to group therapy or I I find a therapist in my area or maybe I you know reach out to that friend that has always said they'll be there but I've never asked because I was afraid I was too much you know I'm kind of curious like if we play this out what could happen what would be worst case best case most likely case and yeah, and defining that too much. Because this cycle that we're talking about, not reaching out because you think it's too much and then not feeling safe reaching out, and we're kind of caught. And so it's almost like we never can reach out. I feel like that's kind of some self-sabotaging behavior where we don't want to because we're going to be too much. So we don't. And then essentially we get to feeling so bad that it just doesn't feel even safe to reach out. So we never can. And I think that's on purpose. I know that sounds really judgmental. That's not my my goal here. My goal is to get you to acknowledge what choices you're making here and why and like where this pattern, where the cycle comes from. I know that's a shitty answer, but in there is the truth as to why this is happening for you. Because that fear that reaching out is going to be bad for you, has it been? Do we have any past examples? Has somebody said something that was harmful or we've reached out and it didn't go well? Like, tell me about it. And if not, what's the worry? where did we pick up that worry? Who told us that we weren't going to be okay or that we were too much or that it's bad for us or whatever? Like, tell me about it. Let's let's be curious, not judgmental about this so we can learn where this pattern or the cycle of behavior is coming from. If we don't understand it, we can't get rid of it, right? So let's dig in a little bit more. Another person left a comment says, I can relate to this a lot. I've been better at admitting I'm not okay when some of my safe people ask when I give off vibes. I'm glad you have safe people. I used to always say, yes, I'm okay and shrug it off. Now I can say, not really, or I don't feel too well. And in my head, I have the whole script of what I would like to say to them. But I end up not saying anything or going back to the same generic excuses people use. Didn't sleep well, have a headache, etc. 
How can we stop overthinking this and actually let the words go, but without oversharing either? I feel like finding a middle that won't shock people too much is too hard. I think we have to consider, hmm, where's this overthinking? It sounds like anxiety to me. I'm just going to throw that out there. This sounds like very anxious thoughts. Like we're worrying too much, you know, the script of what's okay to say and not okay to say. Um, I'm proud of you for being honest and saying like, not really, or I don't feel too well. I guess I would want you to journal. I know we hate the J-bombs and the journaling, but journal with a little bit about what would happen if you were honest and you didn't have a script, if you just like rolled with it? What do we think the best case scenario is? What do we think the worst case scenario is? And what's the most likely case? Have we ever been honest with someone about where we're at? We're getting there. You're making huge steps. I'm, again, super proud of you for being honest and saying like, I don't feel good or not really. That's huge. But now... How do we continue in that honesty path and share what's really going on? What are we afraid is going to happen? Because you said you feel like finding the middle won't shock people too much. Like, what are we worried if we shock people? What does that mean? Does that mean that they leave us? Does that mean that we're afraid of abandonment? Does that mean we're afraid they're not going to like us? We're a people pleaser? What are we thinking? Tell me about it. Let's journal about this. Let's be honest with ourselves. Like I've been talking about recently in in my practice of journaling and doing what's called morning pages every day with uh, the artist way. And I actually forgot this Saturday and I was like, oh, at nine o'clock at night, I was like, shit, I never did that. So I'm not perfect either. But in doing these pages, I find that as I pose questions to myself for answers I don't think I have, I actually do. I actually know more than I want to admit. I think because if I admit that I know it, then I'm, I kind of feel like pressure to make the decision. Does that make sense? It's like, I have all this information. Why the hell am I still doing this, right? I can be more judgmental. But if I err on the side of interesting, hmm, I wonder why I didn't want to admit that. I wonder what I'm afraid of. If I can allow myself to, to engage with those real questions, then I can get real answers. But if I don't, if I allow myself to overthink and worry so much about other people, I like not to get too therapisty on you, but I think when we try to focus on other people a lot, what are they thinking? Oh my God, what if they don't like me? What if they put, what if they run away? What if I'm too much? What if I push them away with all of my needs and I'm just so needy and terrible? When we do that, I think it's because we have a discomfort of self. And to be inside ourselves and to be honest about, you know what, I, I like to, the, to know that people like me and it feels shitty if they don't. And I think it's because if I'm honest with myself, I think it's because to be unliked just reiterates that negative self-talk I have about the fact that I'm not good enough, Right. Can we just take a beat? That's just an example. Take a beat and be honest with ourselves about where this is coming from. Because we're distracting with this overthinking and this these scripts and these trying to, you know, not reach out for help because it'll be too much and then I don't feel safe. We're, we're distracting with this instead of tapping in, you know, we're like checking out and focusing on something else. This is a big coping skill for us probably is to focus on other people. And so... To stop overthinking, I think we need to understand why it's happening in the first place. And then my next kind of homework for you would be to just try it out with one person. Because you said you have safe people. So let's pick one. 
next time they ask, we tell ourselves, and might have to try it a few times, but we tell ourselves, you know, I'm going to be honest about where I'm at and I'm not going to roll from a script. I'm just going to tell them, you know, I've been having depressive thoughts lately. I don't know. I'll talk to my therapist about it, but ugh, it's icky, you know, I hate that feeling. It feels so like not myself and everything's like dark and just not motivated, right? We're just honest. We don't have to sugarcoat it. We don't have to make it in the middle so it's not too much. We can just be. And then we see how it goes. We have to try. In or- it's like exposure therapy. In order to prove that anxious, overthinking brain that it's okay, we have to try it out. We have to like do it. And yes, that sucks. But as we journal about it, as we get a greater understanding of where this is coming from, hopefully we feel more empowered to try it out. Okay. Now there was another comment that said, I struggle with reaching out because I'm always told I should be able to do it on my own. There we go. Because I'm more stable, I'm considered higher functioning and the benchmark. I have complex traumas. So I spiral down before showing outward signs. And when I finally do reach out desperate for support, even though I'm barely holding everything together, people assume I'm fine and just want the attention. Who are these people? They sound like assholes, which sort of, or maybe we have these belief systems that are not uh, grounded in fact. So check that, which sort of pushes me further inwards. And I pull away again and just try to do it on my own. I worry that I'm too much for people and should just be able to do shit myself. That's an interesting belief system. So then I fall further down and end up not, I end up non-functioning with what feels like nowhere to turn to for support. I've been in this place for years and years now, and I can't find anywhere that will support me. Anyone that that knows me just assumes I still want attention and just being lazy and unmotivated. What a bunch of assholes. When in reality, I'm trying so unbelievably hard, but know that I need more support to get back to a, to somewhat functioning. How do you know when and where to reach out when you just keep getting turned away or told you aren't enough? I have a lot of I have a question. First of all, are they saying that directly that you should be able to do it on your own and you're not enough? Or are these messages we're receiving indirectly or just third option are these messages we received when we were younger and we struggle to imagine that people can think differently only you know the answers to those questions but take time and consider those three possibilities right are we being told directly is it indirectly through you know verbiage or is this like an old pattern something we were told before that we just assume everybody thinks of us okay take some time think about that for yourself Then I also want you to check your facts when you're saying that like you have to do it all on your own and you have to keep it together and you're like the benchmark and you're high functioning. Is that what we've been told? Is that what we believe ourselves is a little bit of both? Um, Because the truth is that we need to get you better help. If this is happening and we don't feel like we have support, we need to find you support. If you need extra professional help that's what we I honestly think we really need to get some professional help because this sounds like jackassery again whether we're assuming that people are thinking this or if we've actually they've actually said it to us or something's actually happened I don't know only you know that but either way the help that we have isn't good and it's not working and so we need to find a way to get us better help and so my encouragement for you would be to reach out to different treatments. Um, there's Hope for Recovery. Hope, the number four recovery, is a free online resource for group therapy. And they have like trauma-focused therapies, a ton of different options. You can get on the list for one of those. Um, there's also resources like BetterHelp or Talkspace online if you're looking for a new therapist at a reasonable price. Um, I have links in my description that give you a discount to BetterHelp in particular. But feel free to use anyone that you have access to. Um or 
you know, go through your insurance or some referrals through other people that you know who see someone. Um, we need to find you better support because the support you have is, is really shitty. And I don't really understand what's happening and why, why they're being such assholes. So you feeling like you can't reach out. I want to challenge you there. Um, because if we do go to find you this better support, or if you've challenged yourself and thought about like, hey, you know what? I think I'm jumping to conclusions. I think I'm assuming that they think this. They haven't actually told me. Then the challenge or the homework is then to reach out and speak up more quickly. Because it sounds like you might be waiting and then we're just stuffing it deep, 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 deep until we can't function at all. And that is not the goal. The goal is to reach out sooner rather than later. If we feel ourselves spiraling, we tell our therapist, hey, could I get an extra session in? Or hey, could we make one session like 20 minutes longer? Or hey, is there a group I can join? Or um, can we do a check-in? There's a lot of different ways. Or maybe I should tell my friends or family about it sooner if they're supportive and helpful. I need to let them know. I need to do some of my self-care stuff more early on. There's a lot of things that we can do preemptively before we aren't functioning. And I want to make sure you feel free to do that. Okay. And so if you're being told that you aren't enough and that you you can't, you know, you need to fucking get it together and deal with it on your own, then we need to find you better people and ignore those people. I'd encourage you to just put distance between you and those people that told you you weren't enough or that you have to deal with it on your own. If in case, like I said, we have to be curious, is that the truth or is that me retelling an old story that isn't serving me anymore? Be honest about it. And that should help you know what you need to do next. Let's move on to question number three. And question number three says, hey, Katie, I feel like I don't belong anywhere. Family, work, university, my flat. I feel quite lost and lonely. And I'm wondering, what can I do to feel a sense of belonging in this world? I'm autistic and I have depression, anxiety, as well as anorexia. I feel like most of the time I just put up a facade and act the way others expect me to. That's part of the problem. We'll talk about this. It's not safe to disclose my diagnosis at work. And I always feel like if they knew the true me, they wouldn't accept or even tolerate me. There's another little bit of information. Any thoughts and advice would be very welcome. Okay. When we put up a facade and we put on a little mask, right? We can't tell people about our depression or our autism or our anorexia or anything, which is fine. I'm not saying that you should. I'm just saying if we don't have at least one space in our world where we can be honest about who we are, even if for the time being that space is therapy, that's going to make us feel like we don't belong because nobody knows who we are. It's almost like we're setting ourselves up for failure. So this belief system, first of all, you put up the facade, right? And the fact that you said, in, if they knew the true me, they wouldn't accept or even tolerate me. So that's a depressive thought slash just a negative self-talk. Those two things combined are preventing you from actually getting any connection or feeling like you belong anywhere. They're holding you in this cycle. And so the only way to get out of it is to find a place where you can be honest about who you are. Someone in the comments said something about like hanging out with more neurodivergent people. And I have to agree with that. Group therapy can be incredibly healing for this or get, you know, in contact with some different communities online, whether it's for depression, whether it's for autism or whatever you feel that could be helpful too. But really in person is going to be best. And I would really encourage you to find a therapist if you don't already have one. Um, let them know about this. 
I encourage you and challenge you in at least that therapeutic setting to start letting some of your guards down or at least talking to your therapist about your guards that are up. Like you feeling like you just have to put on this facade because no one's going to like you. I want to dig into that. Let's be curious, not judgmental about where this is coming from. Because that belief that if they knew the true you, they wouldn't accept or even tolerate you. That comes from a dark place. That maybe comes from, I don't know, abuse, bullying, um, shit talking from other people in your life or shit talking from yourself. That comes from not a happy place. It could just be your depression too. And I'm not saying just your depression to be like minimizing it. I'm saying it could be the depression that is causing it on its own. Because we all know how depression likes to take away any hope, any connection, any excitement, just like snuffs it out, right? So that could be where that's coming from too. And if our depression is getting that bad, we might need to increase our therapy sessions or possibly, um, you know, get on medication or increase the dose or something, right? We're going to need to get more help if we're still feeling terrible. And so that's really the work for you because you said at work, it's not safe to tell them about your diagnosis. So work is not going to be the place where we get to be our true self. A lot of us feel that way. That's okay, right? But we need you to have other places to go where you do feel that and so that's why you know therapy connecting with other people who are more like you giving people in your life who you trust who seem safer at least okay now an opportunity to meet you where you're at because maybe we're not sharing anything either so if we don't share about how we're really doing or what we're really going through no one can be there for us in a real way because they just don't know right people can't read our minds we have to allow people in by sharing some information little by little. Challenge that. Push back. Because if we keep this facade up and keep assuming that people aren't going to like us and they're not going to accept us if they knew the true us, we're always going to feel like we don't belong. There's no way to feel like we belong when we won't even let anybody meet us there. Do you know what I mean? So give it a try. Challenge that. And keep me posted. Now, there was a comment on this says, I feel similarly. I thought that I had made close friends in school, but when I stopped doing all the work to keep up and schedule events together, I never heard back. I realized that they didn't reach out much even when we were in school together, and I was, the, um, I was only tolerated. Hmm. Is that a fact or an assumption? Just asking. I feel stupid for deluding myself into believing that, even though my family didn't care much for me, that I had friends, oh, I had friends who did. <clears throat> I've heard that spending time with other neurodivergent people can help. But I have a hard time connecting with other neurodivergent people too. I thought that I had decent social skills, but how can I trust that self-assessment when I couldn't tell the difference between tolerance and friendship? <clears throat> I'm curious if you've ever had real connection. You said your family isn't very good. Uh, where was it? Said that you, you know, even though my family didn't care much for me. So I wonder if that's where this is coming from, where because your family was never very accepting, never very loving, we don't actually know what a friendship feels like. We don't really know what connection is. We've never experienced a true friendship, relationship, whatever you want to call it. We might not know what that's like. So we're going to have to learn. Therapy can be a great place to try that out. Journaling can be a great place to pose some questions and kind of learn. I would encourage you to, if you have other people in your life that you think have a lot of good friendships, what do those look like? If not, let's watch TV or a film, something. Could even be reality TV. Those are not good friendships, by the way. Um, but, you know, watch some of those TV shows. Even though they're scripted and it can seem kind of silly, that's because someone is writing that script based on the way they know relationships usually go. 
we can watch them, uh, you know, like some Disney TV stuff for teen type of relationships if we're looking for that. You know, we can watch, I don't know, Sex in the City or Gossip Girl or Friends or any number of shows to see what friendships can look like, good, bad, or indifferent. And I want you to start trying to assess what a friendship is. Because the one red flag that I would say in this comment immediately when you were like, um, you know, I thought I made close friends, but when I stopped doing all the work, <clears throat> sometimes we're the only one making a friendship happen. We're the only one reaching out, speaking up, all of that stuff. And we need to be aware of that, that we will put in the effort, but it needs to be ebb and flow. It needs to be give and take. We need to be calling and texting them sometimes, and they should be calling and texting us sometimes. And it doesn't mean that it's a one for one, that we're keeping track every time. But every six months or so, we should kind of assess assess the relationship. So we're in and think, hmm, am I putting in more effort than they are? Hmm. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Let's consider, take a moment to think about it and be honest with yourself. Because I think if we slow down and we pay attention and we're just more aware, we will recognize this. And if we try to start assessing relationships, like I'd encourage you as you watch TV shows, like let's rate and rank and judge those friendships. They're not real anyways. Let's pretend, right? We got to dig in. What do we like and not like? Because then we're going to come out, come out of all this work, knowing what friendship should look like for us. We could talk with our therapist to assure that it's healthy, it should be balanced, right? Built on trust, respect, and all those good things. But then we can go out into the world and engage in relationships and decide if they're going to be good for us or not. And that's how we'll tell the difference between tolerance and friendship. I don't know if that was necessarily tolerance. It sounds like we might have a pattern of being in relationships that are like that. And so, of course, that was really comfortable and we don't really know another way. So we just have to learn a new way. It takes some time. Be patient with yourself, but you'll get there. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hey, Katie, do you see any issues with using humor to talk about certain things with your therapist? In general, I usually try to make people laugh almost as a self-defense mechanism, and I find it sometimes helps when introducing a topic or a situation to my therapist. Of course, most of the session is more serious, but I think humor helps me feel more connected or comfortable with her. I'm new to therapy, but so far I'm undefeated in getting her to laugh at least once every session. And I even got her to laugh while I was describing a traumatic event. I should get a gold star in therapy for that. Okay. Humor is a defense mechanism. It's a coping skill. It, it's like a deflection. We're like, look over there. Look how funny I can be. Ha 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 ha. Because to be honest about how we feel can be too, make us feel too vulnerable. It can be too, too close too fast. And then we might even have to admit to ourselves that what happened is really shitty and that we feel really bad about it. And we might not be ready. So there, there's no issue with it up front. But as a therapist, I would definitely call you out on that. I don't know if your therapist has done that yet, but I would. Um, and not in a mean way. When I say call you out, therapy is not like, like, hey, why are you doing You know, I'm not going to be like rude about it. I'm going to say, you know what I've noticed? I've noticed each and every session that you always try to lighten the mood when things get very serious into, you know, by making a joke. Is this something you've done your whole life? Be curious about it doesn't mean there's anything bad with it. We all have our defense mechanisms. Some of us intellectualize. We're like, well, I did some research and I know, you know, like 40% of people have experienced this. So like, it's not that big of a deal. Or, you know, most people with trauma, I looked into it. They do have complex trauma because who has just one trauma? Most of us have multiples, right? We can have these like 
intellectual conversations. Oh, I get it. You know, I should be doing this. Mm, That makes more sense, right? We can intellectualize the whole thing, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still happening. It's just the way that we try to cope with it. And your way of coping is to laugh. Nothing wrong with it, but we should look into it because it's helping us cope. And I want to understand where it came from and how long it's been going on. And if we can try some other ways to deal is the only thing I could ever see being an issue with this is if we struggle to talk about real things and we try to distract with humor in a full and complete way. I've had tons of patients do this with me over the years. We'll be talking about, let's say we're getting into stuff with their mom. Let's say they have a really tumultuous relationship with their mom. As I start asking questions in that line towards their mom, they distract with jokes about things and they try to pull us off course Now, your humor might just be to lighten the mood and we can still stay on track and still get into the deep things. But when it starts to derail us, that's when I'll like, okay, let's bring it back. Okay, I hear that. I know you feel an urge to make this lighthearted and joking. And then I would push back and challenge with the like, how does it feel to sit with this? Is this really uncomfortable? Does it make you want to dissociate, right? I'd have a lot of questions about it because If it's keeping us off course and preventing us from getting to the real issue, that's when it's a problem. Otherwise, it's a defense mechanism. We can acknowledge it. We can seek to understand it. And we all have them. There's no judgments there. Okay? But we need to understand them because they pop up a lot. There's a comment to as an add-on. I do this as well. I usually talk about my self-harm experiences or self uh, sexual assault while smiling, or at least like I don't give a shit about what I've been through, and I'm describing terrible things, and I just don't show any emotion. Yes, that happens. It can be part of the like disconnection. Um, it could be dissociation, but it's usually it's that keeping that disconnect from what really happened and what we're you know what we're sharing, and that can be done through that kind of buffer or that filter of comedy or humor or not showing emotion for it and keeping it disconnected from how we really feel allows us to keep pushing through because sometimes the will be we can feel like we'll be so overwhelmed with emotion or it's just too emotionally charged that we like can't stay present panic attacks dissociation or just like I don't want to be a blubbering mess you know I've had so many patients of mine they're like I don't just want to like break down like I don't that doesn't feel good to me I don't want to do that and so we'll put that buffer up or that protective kind of wall where we disconnect and don't show any emotion or we make a joke about it, right? So yeah, that's very common. Okay, let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I was wondering whether it's better to distract from something like a flashback or a panic attack or to just let it play out. Good question. I sometimes feel the buildup to something, although I don't always know what it will be. And I want to distract myself. But sometimes if I do this, I end up feeling worse later on. Yep, we'll talk about that. Like it's all been building up and then it's 10 times worse than it would have been to start with if I dealt with it earlier. Again, sometimes I think it's worked, but I end up having nightmares and it'll just hit me again the next day until I do something about it. Obviously, sometimes the distractions work and it's what I need, but it's hard to tell what to do. Thanks for all you do, of course. Now, first let's talk about when distractions are helpful. Now in the moment, let's say I'm about to give a presentation at work or I have a big important meeting and I can feel, I can feel the overwhelm building. I can't break down right now. I have to distract. Okay. That's, that's life. That's survival. That's why distractions exist. Distractions make it so that we don't fall apart when we don't have the, the space to do so. 
It doesn't mean, oops, sorry, hit my microphone. It doesn't mean we do it all the time. That distract, that's when distractions become actually detrimental, okay? So we can distract in the moment to get us through something at work. However, when we distract like that, I always encourage my patients to do what I call back burner. And maybe this is because I do DBT a lot or dialectical behavior therapy. But if you're going to distract, back burnering means I promise to get to that upset later, later today. It's usually within the day. Okay. Unless there's some situations like let's say we're on a long weekend with family or something, then we can back burner till we get to a safer space. But when are we going to fall apart? When are we going to let ourselves feel it? When are we going to journal, acknowledge, whatever? Because we need to make that a priority. So distract in the moment, tend to ourselves later so that we don't feel like shit because it end up feeling worse later on. And that's because we never got to process what was coming up. We just kind of stuffed it deep down. And that's why it feels bad and it feels worse than it maybe would have in the moment. Okay. So there's that. So that's where distractions, like they play a role. They can be helpful, but they can also be detrimental. Now, I think to use distractions only in times when we can't fall apart is what is key. Otherwise, we should let it play out and we need to come up with some coping skills, not distractions. So distractions, there's distraction-based coping skills and there's process-based. Now, what I'm talking about right now is process-based because we're going to need to have some coping skills to help us manage what's coming up. That might mean we journal. That might mean we call a friend, call a therapist. Might mean we... um. I don't even know, do an impulse log. It depends on what we're struggling with. We need to do like a body shake, some way to regulate our system, right? So we need to have some coping skills that are process-based to actually help us dig through or work our way through what was coming up for us. Does that make sense? And so if we feel that build up and we aren't able to fall apart in the moment, it is okay to do it later. Just don't wait very long because then you won't have that 10 times worse buildup, you know, than if you dealt with it earlier. It's actually best that we deal with things in the moment, but life isn't perfect, right? I can't always have a panic attack or allow for a flashback or write about what's coming up for me and hoping it'll kind of come and go, right? So that's really my advice. Don't wait till the next day to try to acknowledge it. If you can in the same day, let's process it through whether like all the different process-based coping skills I said. And the only reason that I, or the only times that I think distraction-based stuff is good is when we just can't do it in the moment. And this doesn't mean I wouldn't be comfortable in the moment. We're never comfortable. This just means, like I said, I have a presentation. I have this big thing. I can't, I'm on a plane. I can't have a panic attack right now. We'll do it later and do it within that day if you can. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hey Katie, my husband and I are both in therapy and seeing different therapists at the same practice. That's wonderful. says we're both dealing with the same marital issue in our individual therapy sessions. My therapist offered to talk to my husband's therapist with both of our permissions. Of course, do you think that our therapist discussing our individual issues about the situation could help us? Thank you for being a wonderful advocate for mental health. Of course, of course. I think you should do like a group session. That's my recommendation. Your therapist discussing your individual issues can be helpful, but not in the same way as being in the same room. Now, I would have your therapist discuss it ahead of time before you have that group session because then they're on the same page and they can help guide together, right? And having both therapists and both you and your husband, it's like you just have a joint session that week. And they might do this a few times off and on. Because if you're dealing with the same issues, 
You could get into couples counseling and do that regularly, which could be another uh, great option. But because you both already have your therapist, if they'll do this and they're in the same practice, this is like ideal, let's schedule one together. Work it out with your, your schedules and their schedules. Let's figure it out. Let's do it at the same time. Because if you're dealing with the same issues, it sounds like you probably need some time and space together to talk through these issues. Like, let's say the issue is money or sex. Those are the most common. Or parenting, that's the third. Um, and since you're having the same issue, this could speed up the process versus feeling like you talk to your therapist and you have some homework to do and he talks to his therapist and he has homework to do and you come together and it might line up or it might not. This will just break through that. Them talking about it could help as well. But I really think that together session will be best. That's really where we can kind of hash it out, figure out what what stumbling blocks each of you have, what defense mechanisms are coming up, why does this keep happening, what can we do to work together. That will really, I think, help the most. Okay? And the reason, just to finalize that, the reason that your therapist talking about it without you could be helpful is because they might be running like parallel thoughts but they need to be together for you and your husband to be able to work together right because it might be without realizing it kind of fighting against each other oh I was telling him to do this oh I was telling her to do that and you're like oh that's why it wasn't lining up even though the goals are the same there can be different ways to get there and so we want to make sure that we're kind of on the same route but again together would be the best okay Question number seven says, Katie, how do you know if you're even doing therapy right? I've been in therapy for nine months and I took a couple month break. She knows I was sexually abused and I used self-harm to deal with it. But I don't know if I'm sharing what I need to share. She wants me to change the way I look at the abuse and stop thinking it was my fault. Reframing. And it's factual. True. But how do you do that when you have an orgasm during it? Let's talk about that. It makes me feel like I must have wanted it or enjoyed it. I'm embarrassed to talk about it and it's causing me a lot of problems. I ruined a relationship because I can't have sex. I was suggested by a friend to get comfortable with myself in that way and try to do it on my own. But even that scares me. Any thoughts on that? I'm scared to go get checked by even a doctor now, which I need to do soon. Advice? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And the first is when you said you had an orgasm during your abuse, I want you to, I know this is hard. But I want you to understand that an orgasm is a physiological response to something happening to your body. It does not mean you enjoyed it. It doesn't mean you wanted it or you liked it or any of those things. It's like the fact that if someone sticks something down my throat, I'm going to throw up. My body just, ugh, it does a thing without me having to participate. That's what happened. I know that's hard to believe. I know you have a lot of obviously other thoughts about orgasms. And yes, it can be part of a very healthy sex life when the sex is consensual. But when it happens during an abusive situation, I've had patients who it's happened, you know, during an assault. And then they're like, maybe I did like it. Just because you have an orgasm doesn't mean that you liked it. Okay. Let's challenge that. Now, of course, it's embarrassing to talk about shame, embarrassment, and guilt come along with abuse all the time. It's how we can get held kind of in that shame spiral or that abuse thought spiral. Um, and it, of course, it's causing you a lot of problems. I think you're doing therapy correctly, just the way you need to. Sharing what you can when you feel able to do so. Of course, it's going to be hard for you to have sex. You might, I don't know if you said that you had childhood sexual abuse. Okay, I'm not sure. But 
if you do, the Courage to Heal workbook is a great resource to bring up with your therapist and see if they'll um, work through it with you. That could be really healing since you said you ruined a relationship because you can't have sex. Um, it helps us heal. Okay. So that could be a good place to start. Um, I think you could try to do it on your own and like do masturbation. We talked about this. I think it was the last week's episode. Um, I don't think that that's where we need to start. I think that's like kind of jumping ahead. I feel like we need to acknowledge and process this judgment around having an orgasm during the abuse. I think the Courage Shield workbook can also help us heal from that trauma and that abuse that we sustained and help us come out of it with a healthier relationship with our body and with sexual intimacy, knowing that it's our choice to participate or not in it. And we get to decide what happens to our bodies. I know, that, and that's obviously like that's down the line, but really for now, keep talking about it as much as you can in therapy, acknowledging the embarrassment and the shame that comes up with it. And it might help to journal about it, maybe even ripping up the journal after if you don't want to have it there, I understand. But getting some of this overflow of emotions and maybe body memories and uh, assumptions that we're making about ourselves or judgments, getting that out will be really, really helpful. Okay, you're doing a great job. Just keep at it. Um, and then getting checked out by a doctor. That is something that you're going to probably want a support person to come with you. Um, ask your therapist if they'll call. You have to sign a release. But to call the doctor and let them know that you have a history of sexual abuse. Then they can ensure that you have someone who's supportive there. That they don't just like go quickly and you're like, Ugh. Um, I've also had patients and even part of our members of our community who have asked their psychiatrist for like some add a van or something during this to help like mitigate the anxiety that can happen when we have to go get an exam it's just like just a one-off thing to help calm you down having someone take you and take you like bring you and take you home is really important too so all of those things getting you that kind of ancillary support so that we can get through that doctor's appointment because I know how triggering that can be but let's prepare ahead set ourselves up for success because you can get through it and it'll be okay okay there's another comment on this that also, what if you use sex or sexual acts as a form of self-harm? I actually have a video about this, an old one. Just look up um, self-harm, sex as self-harm, Katie Morton, it should come up. It says, even masturbation, I imagine myself being raped again because I feel like I deserve it. How can we ever have a normal sex life? I know it feels like it's miles away, but it's not. It's it's managing how it's coming up for you. So this is how it's representing itself. And in a lot of ways, this I know this just hanging here with me, I know this can be really hard to hear. But when we use sex as self-harm, it can often be a way of our body and our brain trying to process another time what happened to us. You know how we talk about why flashbacks come up and why we can be like doing well and then we finally feel like we're in a safe place in our life and we're like, oh my God, the trauma is like so, it's everywhere, right? That's because we didn't feel safe to explore it to experience it we just repressed everything now that we feel safe when we were using sex as self-harm we're like trying to find another way to have this happen or it can be another way for us to manage what's coming up because of the abuse I know it seems you're like what we're interesting creatures right we try to find different ways to cope and different ways to quote unquote make sense of something that doesn't make sense you know it, abuse never makes sense and we're trying to, our best to try to make sense of it. And that's hard. It can sometimes feel impossible. And so 
you can get into a place of having a normal sex life. We have to process through what's coming up for you. We have to maybe do some EMDR or find ways to manage the symptoms that are so upsetting. I don't know if that's a high sex drive or if it's the urge to, you know, masturbate as a way to hurt ourselves or to have sex with other people as a way to hurt ourselves. We might want to go through a period of abstinence from those things to see what comes up then and talk about that in therapy. You know, there's a lot of ways around this, but instead of judging and jumping to the judge, right? Jumping to judge and be like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Why is this so messed up? Blah. And like being so angry at ourselves or wanting to blame ourselves for what's happening. Can we take a beat, breathe, and consider that this is the only way we know how to cope? And maybe we're having a hard time. And maybe it's because it's so uncomfortable to feel how we feel and we don't know how else to cope for it. Let's try to get ourselves to that place. Let's think this is probably the only way I know how to deal. That's weird. That is weird. Why is this happening? Who can I talk to about this? You know, find a therapist that's trauma-informed, that is is helpful. And again, that Courage to Heal workbook can be incredibly helpful in healing. Okay, hang in there. We'll get there. Final question, question number eight. Says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for asking. Hope you're doing well. Says, is NPD, meaning narcissistic personality disorder, like a spectrum? I watched your video about the eight signs of narcissistic mom, and I recognize mostly my father. Not all of these fit with him, however, or at least not without exceptions. Moreover, he has improved his behavior over the years. Is this expected from a narcissist? I'm so confused. Thanks for everything you do. Now, there's a huge difference between having narcissistic tendencies or symptoms of narcissism, which is what I was really referencing in the narcissistic mom video. So there's a difference between that and someone being diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Again, because we're talking diagnostic criteria and having to check all those boxes. Now, sure, could you have the signs that I mentioned and your parent actually have NPD? Of course. But I don't know those people and they'd have to be assessed and actually treated and diagnosed by a real mental health professional in their own life. Most people with NPD aren't going to see a mental health professional, but maybe some would and get properly diagnosed. So that's kind of the key there is the difference between having some symptoms because I could have some symptoms of depression and not have major depressive disorder. Like I honestly personally definitely have some like anxiety symptoms or what I would call generalized anxiety disorder symptoms like that uncontrollable worry. I experience that quite a bit, but it doesn't really meet the criteria for GAD. Therefore, I don't have GAD, but I have some anxiety symptoms and the same goes for NPD. Hope that makes sense. Now, the fact that your dad has improved his behavior over the years could come from um, his own personal work. I don't know if he's in therapy. It could come from the fact that he's getting older and sometimes, you know, people who were kind of assholes when they were younger realize the faults in their ways and work to correct them. In my experience, and what we know about real NPD, this isn't likely to happen, unfortunately. And likely means, you know, it's not more than 50%, okay? Most people with NPD, as they get older, actually get worse. And this is because the, the patterns of unhealthy and manipulative behavior, they become more and more ingrained in them. And it's harder and harder for them to admit how pained they are and how much hurt they're in. If you don't know, NPD is like a protective shell that we put up to protect this wounded inner child of us, essentially. Um, it's often born out of trauma, not always, but very, very commonly. And so as we get older, it's almost like 
we are even more disconnected from that sad part of ourselves. And this fake facade is so much more believable to us, you know, because we've been living this lie for like years and years and years. And we can just become even more irritable about that disconnect and that discrepancy. Does that make sense? And it becomes even more of a higher risk for someone to like scratch away or break into or through that facade or shell and see the real us. It's it's too high risk for us that we can become extremely volatile, incredibly manipulative, manipulative to like an even higher level than before. So my thoughts about your dad is most likely he has some symptoms of narcissism. He had some of those traits Maybe because he was young and stupid and I don't know, maybe he was an alcoholic or just an asshole or whatever. But he's kind of grown out of it and he see, he's like, oh, I don't really like that I did that. And he's working to change and that's awesome. So he might not be, he might not have MPD. And yeah, again, and I know there was some confusion around that video. People thinking that the signs des- like definitely meant that someone had NPD and that's not what it is. It's just signs and symptoms, but someone having them all may or may not line up with a full diagnostic criteria. I don't think it actually did because there's some that don't. It's the way the person feels and you wouldn't know what they're experiencing, right? This is more like the outward and the way it could be experienced as a child of a narcissist, right? Because it's the mother. And so that was what we focused on more. I hope that clears that up. I know it can be kind of confusing. I'm happy to talk about it more, okay? Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope the answers were helpful. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.